So what are the differences between a museum and a hospital? Well, museums display items for people to study, observe, admire, and appreciate. Hospitals, on the other hand, welcome sick and injured people, and they seek to provide compassion and help. In museums, you're expected to behave and to respect the items on display. In hospitals, behavior is not really the point. In museums, you're expected to be okay, and if you aren't, you had better act like it. In hospitals, you are there because you're not okay, and you need some help with that. Museums are focused on the items that are being displayed. Hospitals are entirely focused on helping people, helping people. So here is the question for us this morning we're going to think about. I hope you'll think about this and where you fit in all of this. Which of these two, a hospital or a museum, should a church, a body of believers, more closely resemble? A hospital or a museum? Let me ask you this personally, not just the church as a whole, but you. What is your view on people who come to friendship? Do you, do you view us, do you view you as part of a museum or part of a hospital? You'll think about that today. It's been said many times. A church should not be a museum for saints. A church should be a hospital for sinners. Do you really believe that to be true and believe that practically? I want to press the point today. I trust that God will do so in your own consciences. Do you view yourself, if you're a member here for that matter, as part of a team of spiritual doctors and nurses, healthcare workers, here to provide compassion, love, and help to people who need it? Or do you look at yourself otherwise? Friends, I believe this. A church is not to be a museum for saints. A church is to be a hospital for sinners. And by the way, if you're here breathing, you are a sinner. You're part of that group. The title today is A Chase for an Atmosphere of Grace. A chase for an atmosphere of grace. I want to give you three parts to this message here. First of all, a parable. Then some snapshots of people that might be here who could use some grace potentially. And then finally, some stories of grace that will help us to understand hopefully better biblically God's heart for the people that God brings our way. Number one is the parable. Look at Matthew 18. And the gospel of Matthew is a, one of the four gospels. The stories of Jesus, uh, the narratives of his life and, 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 and death and birth and so forth, resurrection. Matthew is the gospel written to the Jews, written to convince Jewish people in the first century that the guy who lived a few years ago and died and so forth in, in Galilee, Jerusalem and that, that was the Messiah, that was the Son of God, and to convince them of that. In Matthew 18, we are getting close to the end, uh, toward the end where Christ will be betrayed and then arrested and crucified and then raised from the dead. And so Christ is teaching his disciples and some others potentially as well. Look at verse 21. This is a discussion between Jesus and Peter. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft, how often, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? 
Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee unto seven times, but until seventy times seven. Peter asked Jesus, if I know a person and they wrong me, they don't measure up to my standard, if you will. How many times should I forgive them? How many times should I extend them grace? One writer said that the, the rabbis proposed three. Three times is a pretty appropriate number of times to overlook offenses by their enemies. And so Peter seems to think here that he is posing a pretty grace-filled view of how hard we are on people. I'll give him seven. Seven, Lord? Is that good enough? Christ potentially stuns him and those around him in this discussion as he says, no, not seven times, and maybe a play on words, no, 70 times seven. The point here is not 490, obviously. We know that, right? The point is the number of times that, that we, that Peter and you and I, extend grace to someone, it has no limit. It is innumerable. No matter how many times someone wrongs you, doesn't measure up in your eyes and disappoints you, you are to extend grace potentially an infinite number of times. That's what he says. And then he gives a story, a parable that will make the point very, very clearly. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. There was a king in a realm. He potentially had maybe provincial governors underneath him, I would say, in this story. And so the king wants to clear the books to get the records straight and collect the debts that are owed to him. Verse 24. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, this is a lot of money. A lot, a very large amount of money. The, the thought that I have in studying this here is that this servant was a governor over a territory or territories, and the debt owed to the king may have been uh, a cumulative amount of, of taxes that should have been collected over a period of time and given to the king. How much is 10,000 talents? One writer said that the total annual revenue collected by the Roman government from Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee one year, the taxes was 900 talents. And so 10,000 talents would have been roughly 11 years of taxes from those four provinces of land. 10,000, as one writer also said, is maybe the largest numerical term in the Greek language, used figurative, figuratively to represent a vast, uncountable number. Revelation 5 talks about um, people around the throne. It says the number of them was... 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Innumerable, just massive. And so again, research today, this 10,000 talents, somebody says maybe $6 billion, a large amount of money. The point is this, the man owed, owed an incalculable and unpayable debt. Verse 25, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The man does not have the money. Of course he doesn't. And so the king says to himself, well, let me get something back for this, this horrible mess. Sell this guy and his stuff and his wife and his kids. 
Whatever, we, we get back from that transaction, give it to me, and that'll be what I get back from this horrible disaster of a financial situation. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down. He fell down and worshiped him, the king, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. This servant is desperate. He's going to lose his family, his home, his wife, his poor children, all because of his bad choices. He gets desperate and makes an honestly foolish statement. Have patience, and I will pay thee all. If this man had ten lifetimes, he could never have gained that money to pay the king what he owed him. And so he falls on his face in front of the king, gives worship to the king, begs for patience and for mercy and for grace. What happens next in this story is truly amazing. Verse 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. The king sees the man. He is emotionally moved with compassion for the man. In a drastic twist, the king doesn't give an extension. He gives the man complete forgiveness of the debt. He loosed him. It means to release him, to free him fully. He forgave him. He canceled and let go of the debt. The king shows unbelievable, literally unbelievable grace to this man, tells him to go away. He doesn't owe the king one thing, not one penny. Let me just stop for a second here and and, and kind of retell the story uh, in a narrative way. The man, uh, the servant, leaves home that morning kisses his wife, and he is visibly nervous. And his wife says, what's wrong, honey? He says, the king wants to see me. And babe, I got to tell you, I owe him a lot of money. How much? I'll just say it's a lot, okay? He walks out, heads toward the residence or the office or whatever the place of business for the king, and his heart is pounding. He comes to the waiting area. The king is expecting him. There is sweat in his forehead. The king says, no pleasantries. Uh, what's the deal, buddy? You owe me some money here. It's a lot. Um, where is it? The servant he's and haws, and he says, you know, I, I just don't have it right now. <laughs> the king says, you know what? I'm not amused. I'm not pleased by this. You're mocking me. He says, you know what? Get this guy's house. Sell it. Sell him into slavery. Sell his wife and kids and whatever else he has as far as that goes. And give me some of this money back, please. The man's greatest fears are realized. He understands he has no one to blame but himself. He thinks of his wife and kids, his poor choices, what he's done to them. And in desperation, he falls on his face. He bows, worships, and he begs for mercy, and there's quiet. He's probably face down, eyes closed. The king's silent for a second, maybe for a little while, thinking, processing. And then he says to the servant, stand up, look at me. He does. The king says this, you know what? I am not giving you an extension. In fact, I am going to forgive you of the debt. You're released and you don't owe me anything. Go home to your wife and your kids and tell them the king says hello. Well, the man is stunned, right? And can you imagine this? This is totally unrealistic. Looks at the king for 30 seconds in shock and Shakes his head, you forgive me? He says, yes, you heard me. I forgive you of the debt. 
I feel compassion for you. You don't owe me anything. I will absorb your debt. You're free to go. Have a good day. How did this man respond, do you think? How did he feel? He probably said, wait, you forgive me? I owe you a lot of money. He says, yes. You're forgiven. I mean, like, we're good? Everything's fine? He says, yes. Look, you're welcome. Go home. You may leave. Get out. I got stuff to do. We're, we're good to go. How did that man feel, do you think? Oh, my goodness. I mean, things have turned drastically from a horrible life of no future to I'm free, freedom, joy, gratitude, lucky, blessed, fortunate, and certainly full of admiration for a king who would absorb so large a debt and forgive him. Was he smiling? How could he not be, <laughs> right? When he walked out and saw somebody he knew, what was, his, what was his sort of his demeanor? Joy, smile, shake hands, how's it going? Having a great day, wow. And by, by that king we serve, isn't he something else? Wow. But that is where this story turns drastically. Verse 28. But the, the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. The same man who had just been forgiven, shown unbelievable grace, goes out, finds a man who owes him a hundred pence. Now, one pence, as I understand, is a day's wage. So a hundred pence is three months of, 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 of wages. It's, it's not a small amount of money. It's a pretty good size amount of money there. But folks, in proportion, right? A hundred pence is nothing. It is nothing compared to the 10,000 talents he was just forgiven of. He laid hands on him. Same terminology for the Roman soldiers who arrested Jesus. He took him by the throat. He's choking this guy. And he says, pay me what you owe me. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, get this, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Sound familiar? The same exact speech request he gave to the king not long before. Should have jotted his memory, right? You would think. But verse 30 says this, and he would not. He would not. But went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. This is very sad. This is very sad. You look at this and you say, how could he do that? How could someone who's been forgiven of so much turn around and treat a fellow servant like that? How could someone who has been showed so much grace and kindness, in spite of their failures before the king, be so hard on someone else? It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question, isn't it? And if you're being honest with yourself, we all get it. We've all been there, haven't we? A couple of observations here with this story. First of all, if you belong to Christ... The interaction between the king and the servant is a picture of what happened to you when you got saved. In this story, who's the king? It's God. It's our Father, our Heavenly Father. Who is the forgiven but unforgiving servant? Unfortunately, that's me. That's probably you. If you're saved today, been forgiven of your sins, that is a real-life picture of what occurred in your life and what is the debt. It is the incalculable debt 
the debt of sin that you and I both owed and that God, if you're saved, forgave. Let me ask you a question to stop here for a second. Have you been forgiven? Do you have the, the freedom that this servant had of the king saying to you, yes, there's a real debt, it's real, but you are released. It is canceled, you will never see it ever again. Listen, friend, like the servant in the story, all of us here were born with a massive debt. It's called sin. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Because of the load of our sin, listen, friend, no amount of good deeds, contributions, comparing ourselves to others around us is going to adequately deal with that debt. But the good news is this. The gospel, like the king in the story had compassion on this servant, our heavenly father has also had compassion on you and on me. And the debt, if you will accept it, has been canceled. How does that take place? There's no free lunch. Somebody had to pay. In our case, that person was Jesus Christ. The king's compassion, the love of Jesus for you, he laid his life down for you. So you could be saved, your sins forgiven and canceled. You could belong to him and have a home in in heaven eternally one day. I just say to you, friend, if your sins are not forgiven yet, if you don't know where you're going to go when you die one day, I would encourage you, do what the servant did. Say no to your sin, acknowledge it, say yes to Jesus Christ in faith, and beg God for his mercy to forgive you. And if you do that, he will save you today. He'll forgive your sins today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, anybody, that's me, that's you, believeth on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Observation two, the forgiven servant turned around and was pretty hard on his fellow servant and the king did not respond favorably to this type of behavior. Notice verse 31, it says, when the fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry. The word gets to the king, verse 34, and his Lord was wroth. He was angry. He was not pleased. Friend, let me just ask you to put yourself in the story here. You've been forgiven of a lot. What has been your response to your fellow servants? And how does God view that? The third observation briefly here, the power source for a person who contributes to a chase for an atmosphere of grace is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not discussing here backing down from truth. Christ was full of grace and truth, John 1.14. But bodies of believers and individuals pursue a culture, a, an atmosphere of grace because they have been genuinely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preach the gospel to themselves every day. You know, if we had a, a vacuum cleaner here right now, and we put it right there, unplugged, we could say to that vacuum cleaner, you know what, I demand you clean. I demand you turn on and do what you're supposed to do. I'm going to berate you. What kind of vacuum? We could yell at that vacuum cleaner all we wanted to. But for it to work, it must be plugged in to an outlet, a power source. And folks, again, what is that power source for the atmosphere of grace? It is you and I being overwhelmed by the goodness of the king, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's love and compassion on us and his gracious forgiveness for us. Look at verse 33. 
telling statement here. The king says to the servant, Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Don't you understand what just happened to you? What I just did for you? How can you not turn around and show the same grace to those fellow servants in your life? The commentaries that I read all pointed to a, a commentary on, these, on this parable later in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.32. Listen to what it says and see how it lays into this parable. And be ye kind, one to another, tender-hearted, soft-hearted, forgiving one another. And then here's the gospel. Even, not in your own, but even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Our love for those around us is to be a response. It is a response to God's vast love for us. Friend, you are to be, we are to be like God in this way. Kind, soft-hearted, forgiving of those around us, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So let me just stop for a second and ask you the question. Are you habitually tender-hearted, soft-hearted, compassionate toward those around you, especially those who may not measure up to the standard of what you want them to be in your life? Or at times, can you be pretty hard on people? Are we a hospital or a museum? Second big point I want to give to you here is this. Snapshots of people who probably need grace from you today, all right? I've got a, my iPhone here in my, my, my thing. Like many of you, I have a camera roll. There it is, the recent one, all right? There's pictures here of uh, me beating Van Prince on, uh, on the uh, go-kart track. He almost got me, real close. Good try, my friend, okay? But I beat him. I barely held him off at the end there. Uh, pictures of Jesse Sellers uh, on the gym floor asleep. Probably needed it for that matter. Uh, the young, younger adults being mature, Stacking up soda cans uh, as high as they can while I'm speaking. A uh, good 10 or so. Good, good job on that. Okay. I want to give you a camera roll of people that are right here who need grace probably. Okay. Uh, in no particular order. Here they are. So number one, people who drive long distances to get here. You realize that? I live five minutes away. It isn't too bad for me. But some of you here come from like Chapel Hill. You come from way east of here. Uh, 20, 30 40, 45 minutes. We have some teens that walk here every Sunday, morning and evening. And so, you know, that's a big deal, man. That's pretty, pretty neat. You know, Pastor Gustavo celebrates. Uh, there's a, a guy that I guess comes for the Hispanic church from like three hours away or two hours away. We celebrate that. But some of you here, every Sunday, you do the same thing. Not ours. Well, Brazil, that would be in that ballpark, right? That's a long way to get here, all right? But I want to say to you, okay, I hope you understand this. Um, you get up early to be here. You're faithful, enthusiastic, you're involved. I just want to say thank you. Thanks for doing that. You should, by the way, of course, it's biblical, but thank you for spending the gas money to make sure your family is here to faithful to assemble and worship. Young families, I, I was there at one time, not as much anymore. If we had a time lapse of you this morning, it would be incredible. You get up on Sunday morning, maybe you see your little ones that you're hesitant to get them up. They're, they're so peacefully sleeping, or maybe it's the opposite for you. You never know, all right? You get them up, you get yourself showered and dressed and fed and get them fed and dressed and 
get them to the car, the van, buckled up, get here anywhere close to on time. That is a process. Listen, some of you have like three, four little kids, and you're here for Sunday school. Before I get here, some of you, I think of one couple that I get here, and I'm like, how are you already here? Listen, you're a hero. I'm serious. You're a hero. I salute you. And I want to say thanks. That's awesome. Not easy, but it's tremendously encouraging. Thanks for being here. People who've been away due to COVID. I love Dr. Scheidner a couple weeks ago addressed the, the, the folks on the live stream. And thanks for watching today, by the way, or whenever you watch and, and that. But he encouraged them and said, you know, it might be time to come back. If you can, I think it's time. I agree with that, by the way. Let me ask you this, though. When they, when they do come, and they, they have, by the way, recently, how do you and I receive them? Hard-hearted or kind and soft-hearted? Let me just coach you for a second. When you see somebody you haven't seen for a long time, if they're okay with it, handshake or hug. If they're not, then step back. Tell them, I'm glad you're here, and ask how they're doing. Don't, don't insult them. Don't even backhanded kind of guilt them. Not a good way to do it. Soft-hearted means we do that kindly and gently. Listen, we want them back, right? We do, don't we? And so understand that the way you and I treat them when they come um, may go a long way toward if they come back the next Sunday, right? So be kind, soft-hearted. Teens and college-agers. Again, college students out of town, thanks for being here today. A number of you here Folks, just going to say, these college students, they may be in the first part of their life, they get to choose to come to church or not. And many of them are here, they're faithful, they're involved, serving. That's awesome. It's fantastic. Thanks for being here, college students, being a part of our body. It is so encouraging. I want to read you um, just briefly a a blog post that I saw in the last month. Uh, The guy wrote this, he said, I have a new hobby. I love to make teenagers cry. Not the way you would expect. I don't insult them or tear them down. I don't tell jokes about their mom or make fun of their haircut. But I use words, five special, powerful words. And those words are, I am proud of you. What happens, he says. Their faces light up. Their mouths erupt into grins. Often their eyes fill with tears. These words of affirmation and love break through hard hearts. They break down cool facades. They interrupt busy lives. Why so powerful? I believe, unfortunately, that because too few kids hear these words from important people in their lives, potentially. Too few dads are affirming their kids. Too few moms are announcing their pride. Too many coaches are looking at scoreboards. Too many teachers are staring at computer screens. Pastors, which is me, aren't paying attention. Kids are told they do wrong, ignored by their parents, get yelled at and punished, taught and lectured, coached and challenged, made fun of, torn down on social media, bullied, crave attention and approval. They act out when they don't get it. Words they rarely hear, I am proud of you. I like that. I do. And folks, again, I don't mean we don't confront sin. Not what I'm saying. But listen, teens and college students, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of our church, our body. We need you. And folks, I'll just say for them, um, not all of them have it all together yet. And I'm part of that club too, by the way. All right? But can we continue to have, pursue a culture and an atmosphere where these amazing young people, young adults, know they are loved?
Next camera roll, people who are hurting, struggling, or have failed. Folks, listen, we are surrounded by hurting people today, all right? Um, the museum looks okay on the outside, but there may be some, some pain inside, and it takes intentionality to see beyond to their hearts. There are people here who have broken relationships in their lives, and those relationships weigh on them every day, including today. People who have lost loved ones, maybe even years ago, but not a day goes by still. They don't miss that person. People who are confused. What do I do with my life? People who have failed. If somebody else knows for that matter, they are hesitant to come here to church because it takes one insensitive person to rip open painful wounds. But they need the body, and the body needs them. Folks, just being honest, just pointing this out, too many times, for whatever reason, those who need the body the most are those who get far furthest away from the body as they can. Why is that? It is my desire, and I know God's more, and yours as well, I know, to see us chase an atmosphere of grace where people who need a friend, need counsel, need support, know they will find love here. Senior saints, I want to say to you, Life not as easy as it used to be, is it? But you're here every Sunday. What a blessing. What an encouragement you are to us. Uh, many of you saw Alex Gupton last couple of Sundays ago in the Narthex or Welcome Center. Man, my heart jumped. Didn't yours? That guy loves you. He loves this, this ministry. What a blessing. Next in the camera roll, those in full-time ministry. We have some teachers here. I just want to, for a second. And they are here at this, this property uh, five days a week, sometimes seven in the morning till nine at night some weeks, Monday through Friday, grading papers on bus rides, free periods. And listen, at this point, they are tired. You know that, don't you? But many of you are here each Sunday. You're faithful, you're enthusiastic, in some cases very involved. I want to say thanks. Thank you. Let's notice that. You can go on and on here with the camera roll. New believers, some who have been here for a while, don't know a lot of people that are here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here as often as you are. Folks, let's chase an atmosphere of grace together. And I encourage you, um, understand the beautiful image bearers around you and the fact that there may be more than meets the eye when you see them. An atmosphere of grace. Finally today, some stories of chasing a culture of grace. I want to give you some, some real life pictures here. Uh, some biblical, some outside. The first one, Rosaria Butterfield. You ever heard of her? Rosaria Butterfield. She has shared her story many times and uh, put it in print. You can read the book. It's called Secret Thoughts of, of an Unlikely Convert. She was a, back in the late 90s, a tenured English professor at Syracuse, had a lesbian partner, and describes herself as being an activist. In her words, Christianity was, quote, eminently resistible. She published an article in the paper one day and got many uh, responses in letters. She put together on her desk two paper Xerox boxes, one for fan mail, one for hate mail. And one day she got a letter from a pastor named Ken Smith, and she couldn't categorize it. It didn't make any sense in either one of those two categories. Her desk was clean, but it irritated her to leave the letter on her desk for six days. She called Ken. This led to many visits in Ken's and his wife's home. One day, Rosaria Kent comes to church, and eventually, Rosaria Butterfield confessed faith in Christ. A culture of grace does not dismiss truth, right? 
She said in the book, Ken stressed that he accepted me as a lesbian, but didn't approve of me as a lesbian. Grace and truth together. Truth, no backing down, but with kindness and grace and soft-heartedness. And her comment was this on that letter. It was the kindest letter of opposition that I have ever received. And that is why she listened to this pastor and his wife and opened her mind to their arguments and the truth and eventually became a believer. She's a pastor's wife today in Durham right now, last I understand. The prodigal son. Again, we don't have time to dig into this in depth, but I want you to think about this. Luke 15, the son dishonors his father in the story, takes his inheritance. His father's still alive, moves out, wastes all of it with shameful living. One day he comes to himself, reflects on the benevolent character of his dad, takes a risk, and he goes home. It says when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He ran, probably an old man, and he ran. If he was in a robe to run, he pulled this up, right? Potentially exposing his undergarments, just being honest with the culture, but he didn't care. Shameful, fine, he loved his son. He gets to him, doesn't even finish the speech of repentance his son does, has the biggest calf killed, throws a feast and a party, doesn't qualify him, doesn't berate him, man, an explanation, he simply says, my son was dead, and he is alive. You know, folks, some Christians may have stopped that son, berated him for his behavior, made sure he was genuine, which there's some wisdom, I get, I understand what I'm saying here, and then sent him away righteously, thinking they were being godly by being hard on somebody who was that close to them. Listen, that was the Pharisees. That was the elder son. The father received his son. Is that our heart toward people? Are we hard on them? Or because of the impact of the gospel in our own hearts, are we kind, soft-hearted, forgiving? The last one here, Jesus, the friend to sinners. His enemies, I believe, accused Jesus of being a friend to publicans and sinners. Now think about this. When Jesus met a person, if he wanted to, he knew everything about them. What they thought of him, their failures, their moral problems, their hearts, their greed, their lust, their insecurities. And yet it says that Christ befriended these people. What does a friend look like to you? What do you do with your friends, interact with your friends? You hang together, you have coffee, you talk, share stories, share challenges, you pray together, you watch games, you, you go for walks, whatever, vacation. That was Jesus with sinners. He knew very well were sinners. He was their friend. So let me ask you a question here again. How do you view people? How do you view your church? Are we on the team of spiritual health care workers wanting to provide compassion and help to anyone and everyone who needs it? Or... Are we insistent on the demands the church is a museum for saints? If you're going to fit in here, you must act the part. How did Jesus look at things? In Luke 4, he began his ministry, and it's, he, he makes this statement. He reads from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. 
Later it says this, all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which came out of his mouth. How does that sound to you, his ministry? A museum or a hospital? The Pharisees, Jesus said, um, add burdens to people. Burdens impossible to bear. And yet Christ in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, those who labor and are heavy laden, you're buried down, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. That is a culture and atmosphere and attitude of grace. Wrapping up here, folks, I want to make a, give you a thought here that I hope you'll think about. Uh, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, okay? Um, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Both are important and essential. We're highlighting one today. When somebody says the phrase of their church, they are a come-as-you-are church, I think many of us look down that a little bit. And if come-as-you-are means come-as-you-are and there'll be no discomfort, no addressing sin, no clarity of truth, the criticism is, is definitely warranted in that, in that case. Make sense? But stop for a second and think about this. That statement by itself. We want folks to come to Christ, right? To come to a Bible-teaching, gospel-filled church. So just think about this for a second. How do you want them to come? Make sense? How many hospitals would say, you know, uh, you're injured, but we would prefer you kind of take a shower and get a little cleaner first, and then please come back and we'll take care of your, your needs. Or, you know, that arm looks kind of rough, that cut in your face, uh, it's pretty nasty. Uh, if you would go and get, get that kind of cleaned up a little bit, we would sure appreciate it. We've got kind of a, you know, how we do things around here. No, hospitals, just being honest, in and of themselves are come as you are, right? Aren't they? That's their philosophy. I heard this recently. I think it was good. It was a, a, a marketing slogan for a gym. Come as you are, leave as more. We want folks to be transformed by the gospel, right? To experience the love and grace of our Savior. And so come as you are, and we'll pray by God's grace and with his power that you will leave as more. So let me ask you this again, circling back. Do you see the church your own impact in the church as a hospital for sinners or a museum for saints? Are you soft-hearted, forgiving, welcoming, compassionate? Or do you think and live in a way that insists that we need to make sure the church is a museum for saints? Now, granted, 2 Timothy 2, 19-21 does give some sort of an allusion to a museum-ish, a house with Vessels to honor. God wants to see people grow and be sanctified in their, in their relationship to him. But I do believe the heart of Christ's ministry drive, should drive us in our view of our church to be a hospitals for sinners. And sinners describes all of us. Matthew 9, the analogy is biblical. The Pharisees saw it. They said to the disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Jesus heard that. He said to them, they that be whole... Need not a physician, but they that are sick. Go learn what that means. I'll have mercy, not, not sacrifice, but for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, with God's help, with the gospel empowering us, let's pursue being a welcoming, compassionate, loving, helpful, grace-filled hospital for those in need.
Amen? And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, soft-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for being a friend to a sinner like me. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to, to show the love of the Father in the prodigal son story, to love people, to show them your grace and your truth. God, help us to balance those two. Help us to hold fast to truth, the gospel truth, to present that unashamedly but kindly. Help us to show your love to, to every person who's here. God, all of us are the mission field, if you will. We all need grace. We need your love. Help us to do that. And Lord, if there are folks that are here today that have never received that forgiveness from the king, would they do so very soon and have the grace that comes with being forgiven, belonging to you, and a home in heaven. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.